Hello, everyone, and welcome to the August 27 edition of the WorkCop Academy Weekly News. I'm Renee Foles, an attorney with the Floyd Scarron Law Firm. Thanks for joining us today. Let's get started with our litigation report. Comp partners prevailed in a court battle that ended in the California Supreme Court. Two years ago, the Court of Appeal opened the Pandora's box of potential litigation against utilization review physicians in a published decision. The California Supreme Court agreed to review the case and just reversed the Court of Appeal in the case of Kirk King versus Comp Partners Incorporated. Kirk King suffered anxiety and depression due to chronic back pain resulting from the back injury at work in 2008. In 2011, he was prescribed an anti-anxiety medication known as clonopin, and the request for his medication was sent to utilization review. An anesthesiologist who conducted the UR determined the drug was unnecessary and decertified it, and Kirk was required to immediately stop taking the clonopin. Typically, a person withdraws from clonopin gradually by slowly reducing the dosage. Due to the sudden cessation of clonopin, King suffered four seizures, resulting in additional physical injuries. In 2013, another request for clonopin was made by the PTP. This time, a psychiatrist conducted a second utilization review and also determined clonopin was medically unnecessary. UR doctors examined Kirk in did not examine Kirk in person, and neither warned Kirk of the dangers of an abrupt withdrawal from clonopin. Both UR doctors were employees of Comp Partners, a workers' compensation utilization review company. King then sued Comp Partners and the two doctors for negligence and other torts. The trial court sustained the defendant's demurrer without leave to amend, but the Court of Appeals sustained the demur but reversed the denial of leave to amend. However, the California Supreme Court reviewed the case quite differently. It concluded that the workers' compensation law provides the exclusive remedy for the employee's injuries and thus preempts the employee's tort claims. The Supreme Court said it is well established that the exclusivity provisions preempt not only those causes of action premised on compensable workplace injury, but also those causes of action premised on injuries collateral to or derivative of such an injury. Such collateral or derivative injuries include injuries stemming from conduct occurring in the workers' compensation claims process. In performing their statutory functions, utilization reviewers, much like independent claims administrators, effectively stand in the shoes of their employers. Thus, the Supreme Court concluded that the exclusive remedy for the King's injuries lies within the workers' compensation system. And WCAB panel decisions are more frequently approving total disability awards based upon vocational rehabilitation experts. The trend seems to be an erosion of reliance on the AMA guides, which was mandated as a rating tool in SB 899 when it passed in 2004. A new panel decision is illustrative of this new trend. 
Craig Hanus sustained injuries to his left shoulder, neck, low back, and neurological system in 2014 while employed as a heavy equipment mechanic. In 2015, Hanus obtained a job at a new company, Northrop Grumman, as a painter. He only lasted six hours before he said his body shut down, as it had done when he tried to return to work for his employer at the time of the injury. Hanus testified that when he stopped working for Northrop Grumman, he had pain in his hands, arms, shoulders, back, legs, headaches, and shooting pain in his ears that would sometimes go to his eyes and affect his eyesight. He concurrently had pain, he said, everywhere, had balance problems, and uses a cane to prevent falling. Following left shoulder surgery, he could not raise his left arm above shoulder level and could not grip or grasp things in his left hand. He was seen by a vocational evaluator who found that he was untrainable and 100% disabled. And the work comp judge agreed and found that Hanus sustained 100% permanent disability without apportionment. The petition for reconsideration by the employer was denied in the panel decision of Hanus versus URS ACOM Corporation. The WCAB concluded that the rating of permanent disability was not determined by measuring work restrictions, but rather by reference to the ratings of the whole person impairment under the appropriate sections of the AMA guides. The WCAB found that descriptions of the extent of applicants' impairments, which are caused by his industrial injury in the medical reports, as referenced and considered by the VR expert, supported the finding that applicant was permanently and totally disabled. And the Court of Appeal concluded that the lack of evidence of employer animus defeated an injured worker's FIHA claim. Here's what happened in the unpublished case of Galindo versus the City of Los Angeles. Elliot Galindo worked for the City of Los Angeles as a cement finisher in the Department of Public Works Bureau of Street Services. Galindo suffered a work-related back injury in 2004 and did not return to full duty as a cement finisher until 2006. In 2008, he suffered another back injury and was off work for almost a year while his workers' compensation claim was pending. In 2009, he was given permanent work restrictions, limiting him to light duty with no strenuous work. He had to avoid lifting greater than 10 pounds, avoid repetitive bending, repetitive twisting, and avoid unusual body positioning for his spinal condition. Galindo confirmed that the medical work restrictions were accurately stated, but he believed he could nonetheless perform his job as a cement finisher if he was given a lead man role with less hands-on work. Numerous interactive process meetings were held by the city, but he declined to be considered for another job classification, declined transfer to a lower wage position, and said he was not aware of any equipment or devices that could assist him in completing his regular job duties. 
By 2011, a disability retirement was approved by LACERS, which is the Los Angeles City Employees Retirement System. Subsequently, there were additional interactive process meetings after he was retired. Essentially, Mr. Galindo asked to return to work as a cement finisher each time and declined to consider other work. Ultimately, he filed a claim of discrimination with the DFEH. He obtained a right to sue letter and filed a civil complaint against the city of L.A. While his civil action was pending, in 2015, Lacers asked for three medical examinations to reevaluate his disability retirement. All three doctors reported that he could return to work as a cement finisher without restrictions. So by May 2015, he returned to work as a cement finisher without any restrictions. The city then moved for summary judgment in his civil discrimination action in September 2015, which was granted by the Superior Court, and his case was dismissed. The Court of Appeal affirmed the dismissal in the unpublished case of Galindo versus the City of L.A. The city in that case presented undisputed evidence that it was at all times constrained by work restrictions issued by the Workers' Compensation Division. In order to prevail on a claim of disability discrimination, an employee must show that the employer took the adverse employment action with discriminatory animus. The employee cannot simply show that the employer's decision was wrong or even mistaken. The factual dispute at issue is whether discriminatory animus motivated the employer, not whether the employer is wise, shrewd, prudent, or competent. And now our fraud report. Orange County prosecutors charged three employees of several Southern California staffing companies with defrauding a workers' compensation insurance company. They are also charged with failing to report wages, withhold payroll taxes, and pay employment taxes for wages earned to California Employment Development Department. The three defendants are 47-year-old Veronica Lake of Mission Viejo, 49-year-old Luis Enrique Perez of Yorba Linda, and 36-year-old Scott Wesley Smith, who lives in Orange. In 2013, Luis Perez owned and operated several temporary employee staffing companies, including Baron HR LLC. Lake worked for Perez as his controller, while Smith worked as the director of safety. In September 2013, 13, Smith formed Titan Personnel Incorporated and acted as its CEO, CFO, secretary, and sole director. Despite losing its workers' compensation insurance in 2013, Perez is accused of unlawfully continuing to operate Baron HR and contracting with outside companies to provide temporary employees. The defendants are accused of conspiring to fraudulently report 47 injured employees of Barron HR as employees of Titan to American International Group, or AIG, to avoid liability for its employees who were injured at work and to hide Barron HR's failure to obtain workers' compensation insurance as required by law. 
As a result, AIG became liable for nearly $400,000 worth of expenses for claims of individuals not covered by their insurance policy. The defendants are further accused of conspiring to commit tax fraud by failing to report, withhold, and pay employment and personal income tax for 37 Barron HR employees. A federal jury convicted a Lancaster doctor of conspiracy for his role in a Medicare kickback scheme involving a Los Angeles area home health agency. Dr. Karen Gasabi Kankasarwan was found guilty of one count of conspiracy to pay and or receive kickbacks for Medicare referrals and four counts of receiving kickbacks also for medical referrals. The jury rendered its verdicts following a six-day trial. The doctor owned and operated a medical clinic located on Annual Avenue J in Lancaster. Trial evidence showed that Kerkansarwan engaged in a conspiracy with others to refer Medicare patients to Star Home Health Services, a home health agency located in Laverne, in exchange for illegal kickbacks. The kickbacks were between $100 and $700 per patient that he referred to Star. He received the kickback, received the kickback payments in cash as well as through checks payable to a company that he owned. Kankaserwan is scheduled to be sentenced on January 7 when he will face a statutory maximum penalty of 25 years in federal prison. The Medical Board of California records reflect that he is currently still licensed to practice medicine and there are no disciplinary actions pending against him. And 29-year-old Brittany Manakea, who lives in Manteca, was sentenced to two and a half years in prison for a conspiracy to commit mail fraud for her role in a scheme to defraud the state of California by filing false unemployment insurance claims. She was also ordered to pay nearly $140,000 in restitution. Manakea is the first of five defendants charged in the scheme to be sentenced. Co-defendant Sergio Reña has also pleaded guilty and is set to be sentenced on September 6. The charges against co-defendants Pamela Emanuel, Gregory Lee, and Russell White III remain pending. Back in 2015, Manakea entered a scheme to defraud the state of California by filing false unemployment insurance claims using the stolen identities of over 250 California workers. The conservators filed at least 269 false claims, seeking over $2.5 million in fraudulent benefits. And the Medical Board of California has accused a Fresno orthopedic surgeon of practicing medicine on a suspended license. In an amended accusation filed on July 20, the board said it suspended the license of Dr. John P.S. Janda on June 1 back in 2017, but he continued to see patients in his medical office, including issuing prescriptions and performing examinations. The board said Janda backdated prescriptions so that the prescriptions appeared to have been issued prior to the date of his suspension. 
and the doctor told his patients to say, if asked, that they were at his office only to get their medical records. According to the 2017 Interim Suspension Order, Janda, who was then 65 years old, had a history of three syncopal events, which is a brief loss of consciousness, all occurring while he was performing orthopedic surgery. The medical board revoked his medical license in 2015 for gross negligence and repeated negligent acts in his care of two patients. But the revocation was stayed and he was placed on three years of probation with numerous conditions. The board is now petitioning to remove Janda's probation, saying he has failed to timely complete a clinical training program and he has failed to complete a comprehensive fitness for duty neuropsychological evaluation by a physician assessment and clinical education program doctor. Revoking Janda's probation would result in his license being revoked. And in medical news, Facebook's Artificial Intelligence Lab is working with New York University's medical school to make MRI exams 10 times faster, which if successful would allow radiologists to complete a test in minutes. Doctors use MRI to get a closer look at organs, tissues, and bones without exposing patients to harmful radiation. The image quality makes them especially helpful in spotting soft tissue damage also. The problem is tests can take as long as an hour to complete, and anyone with even a hint of claustrophobia can struggle to remain perfectly still in the tube-like machine for that long. And tying up a machine for that long also drives up costs by limiting the number of exams a hospital can perform each day. Computer scientists at Facebook think they can use machine learning to make things a lot faster. To help out, New York University is providing an anonymous data set of 10 thousand MRI exams, a trove that will include as many as three million images of knees, brains, and livers. Researchers will use the data to train an algorithm using a method called deep learning to recognize the arrangement of bones, muscles, ligaments, and other things that make up the human body. Building this knowledge into the software that powers an MRI machine will allow the artificial intelligence to create a portion of the image saving time. Experts at New York University say this might be a real game changer and you could be in and out of the MRI in five minutes. The challenge lies in figuring out how to do that without missing an important detail such as a tiny tear in a ligament. Still, researchers remain optimistic. Preliminary findings released last year by New York University radiologists showed artificial intelligence could be used to reconstruct MRI data. Facebook started talking to New York University about the project last year because its AI team wanted to work on something with real-world benefits even as it performs basic research. It plans to open source any findings in the hope that sharing the data will encourage others to expand upon its work. 
And the battle over high prescription drug prices unsurprisingly involves ample amounts of finger-pointing. Drug manufacturers point to pharmacy benefit managers, the powerful middlemen who administer drug, drug coverage for insurers. The drug makers argue that the industry practice of providing rebates to large pharmacy benefit managers forces them to raise list prices and provides PBMs with a perverse incentive to favor pricier drugs in their formularies. They also charge that the PBMs pocket too much of the rebates to pad their profits, leaving consumers to pay higher prices. Drug makers are under pressure to provide rebates to the few PBMs that dominate the market, which includes CVS, Express Scripts, and United Health's Optum, and that those payers do not pass on enough of those savings to the patients. The drug makers say the rebates force them to raise the price of their therapies over time to preserve their business. On the other hand, the PBMs counter that the drug makers are responsible for their high prices and that there's no correlation between rebates and rising prices. They say their purpose is to drive down prices for their clients and they can point to research that shows that most of the money spent on pharmaceuticals in the U.S. goes to the drug makers. The Trump administration has targeted PBMs and rebates as a key part of its blueprint to lower drug costs. And the Department of Health and Human Services last month proposed regulations to crack down on rebates. The PBM industry has challenged that regulatory move, arguing that eliminating rebates would have to be done by way of congressional legislation. But Health and Human Services Secretary Alex Azar said that eliminating rebates was within his agency's power. He added that the question of rebates may very well be fundamental to the issue of how you reverse these constant incentives to higher list prices for medicines. And the use of pharmaceuticals is an important component of healthcare, including in the treatment of injured workers. But interactions between drugs are always a concern and should figure prominently in medication management. This is especially true given that recent research has shown that polypharmacy, which is the concurrent use of multiple medications to treat one or multiple medical conditions, has become prevalent. Up to 10% of the U.S. population and up to 30% of older adults take five or more drugs simultaneously. The risks are particularly high when opioids or other controlled substances are part of the drug mix. This underscores the importance of utilization review and other forms of clinical oversight. Because of these risks, polypharmacy has generated concern across the healthcare systems, including workers' compensation. And a new CWCI study that uses recent prescription data measured the prevalence of polypharmacy in California workers' compensation and the types of drugs included in polypharmacy prescribing. 
For the purposes of the study, claims with five or more concurrent medications during the two-year study period were defined as polypharmacy claims. 24% of claims with at least one dispensed drug had three or more different prescription drugs concurrently dispensed. The polypharmacy claims tend to be older, with 21.5% of polypharmacy claims being at least 10 years old, compared to 6% of the non-polypharmacy claims. Claims involving back conditions without spinal cord involvement account for the highest proportion of polypharmacy claims at 21.3%. A high proportion of the polypharmacy claims involve older workers, with more than half of the polypharmacy claims involving injured workers who were 50 years of age or older. Analgesic opioids and anti-inflammatories were the top two therapeutic drug groups when three or more drugs were concurrently prescribed. The CWCI has issued its polypharmacy study in a research note which has additional data, graphics, and analyses, and it can be downloaded from the CWCI website. And with that story that is all of our news and events for this week, please check our website daily for news updates, past editions of our news, and much, much more. And remember, you can subscribe to our weekly news podcasts and special reports using your iPhone, iPad, or Android device by searching for the WorkComp Academy with your podcast software. We also publish a daily flash briefing on the Amazon Alexa, Amazon Alexa Echo platform. Search for Workers' Compensation News on the Amazon website. Again, I'm Renee Foles, an attorney with Floyd Scarin Manukian Langevin. Thanks for joining us today. Please drop by again next week for more news.